Blowing Up Kevin, an excerpt from the book Boomer Street, Reckless Recollections of Growing Up in the Two Decades Following World War II, by J.L. Warnock. Dedicated to all the kids who grew up in all the neighborhoods during the 1950s and 60s. God bless them all. Blowing Up Kevin. Fireworks, even on the 4th of July, were strictly illegal in Clearview. But some of the Fremont Avenue fathers occasionally left the state on business and visited neighboring states where low-yield explosives were still available. We're talking sparklers, firecrackers, ash cans, cherry bombs, and the mighty M-80, which among the kids was described as being like half a stick of dynamite. The kids in those families were looked upon with envy by their contemporaries, who could only purchase rolls of caps for their make-believe six-guns. Those gunpowder-disadvantaged kids did, however, discover that if one of them slammed down on a full roll of caps with the business end of a ball bat, the result was a very satisfying blast that would make his or her ears ring for a considerable length of time. Mr. Price usually started his 4th of July observance by firing a cannon. It naturally got the attention of everybody in the neighborhood. No, not a real cannon, but one of those miniature cannons that use carbide to make gas as their explosive. It used a very tiny amount of granulated carbide that was dumped into a water reservoir inside the cannon. The carbide would bubble up, releasing acetylene gas, which was then touched off by pressing down on a plunger that made a spark in the gas chamber. The explosion, contained and directed out the barrel of the cannon, was something to behold. He also seemed to come up with a large enough quantity of cherry bombs to lay siege to a small country. After firing his cannon until he ran out of the carbide, he happily spent the next few hours sitting on his front stoop with an unending supply of cold beer and a huge sack of his favorite explosives. Cigarette dangling from his lip, he would nonetheless manage to swig beer and touch the fuse to the glowing tip of his smoke. Then, with a flick of his wrist, he tossed the little red bomb out into the street, where it would detonate to the delight of the kids who'd gathered around to watch. Mothers worriedly peered from their open windows, occasionally yelling for their particular progeny to move back a safe distance. It was the classic, Get back! That thing can put your eye out! scenario. Fremont Avenue kids being Fremont Avenue kids, they would all sneak forward until a blast peppered their bare legs with flying bits of street gravel. Then, depending on their reputations for toughness, they would scream and run home, scream and jump back, or grimace and stand their ground, walking away only when they got bored. Johnny Stewart lived on the next block over, Leopold Avenue. His block was practically bereft of kids, so he became a daytime resident of Fremont during the summer. One thing Johnny had going for him was his father, who made frequent trips to Virginia. Though Mr. Stewart brought back fireworks for his son, he doled them out in a miserly fashion. 
During the summer that Johnny Stewart and Mickey Warren Jr. both turned 10, Mr. Stewart had to be away over July 4th. Mrs. Stewart, a Polish war bride, didn't yet have a firm grasp on American customs. She allowed Johnny access to some of the fireworks his father had collected, items she judged to be of little or no destructive power, such as firecrackers and the diminutive ladyfinger crackers, but she was afraid to give out anything larger. The paper sack containing the really good stuff was hidden away on a top shelf in the steward's bedroom closet and forgotten. December started out unseasonably mild that year, but by the second week, a surreptitious search for hidden Christmas booty was in full swing. One day, while his father was at work and his mother was busy on the phone with a friend, Johnny attacked the most forbidden of all places, the closet in his parents' bedroom. There, among hats, purses, and boxes, he came across the plain brown paper bag that contained the young boy's idea of heaven. Fireworks! No fool he. Johnny snuck the bag to his room, where he removed only the choicest, most powerful devices brought home by his father. Then, with the skill and cunning of a commie spy, he returned the lightened sack to its previous home in the closet, with no one the wiser. On the very next Saturday, Johnny Stewart and Mickey Warren Jr. set out to construct the biggest, loudest firecracker ever to be detonated in Clearview. They carefully and foolishly cut into the sides of 17 ash cans, or silver tubes as some know them. The highly refined silvery gunpowder was temporarily stored in a baby food jar, as they were never in short supply on Fremont Avenue. The boys needed some sort of tubular container for their soon-to-be bomb, so they scoured the neighborhood. Metal pipe was out. They weren't totally crazy. Something like a heavy cardboard mailing tube would be perfect, but unavailable. Finally, they settled on a section of bamboo they found behind the local carpet store. They surmised that carpets must be shipped, rolled around these long bamboo stalks. After being unrolled, the carpets went into the store and the rods went into the back alley. Two ten-year-olds carrying an eight-foot length of bamboo over their shoulders, like African bearers toting home a lion, might have looked strange, but no one in the adult community questioned their purpose. Besides, how much mischief could kids get up to with a piece of bamboo? That the bamboo was too long for their purposes was plain, but the boys needed a perfect section, not too long, not too short, and without splits, cracks, or visible blemishes. After all, this was to be the firecracker to end all firecrackers. Images of gigantic atom bomb-like mushroom clouds filled their fevered preteen imaginations. This would make them famous, legends among the Fremont Avenue kids. Their names would be whispered with awe, and nothing the fathers ever brought home from their travels would match this pyrotechnic masterpiece. The bamboo was taken to Johnny Stewart's garage. There, the boys discovered that 
cutting through a four-inch diameter section of bamboo with a rusty round-toothed hand-powered ripsaw was a far longer and more tiring process than either had expected. Taking turns, they eventually separated their holy grail of destruction from the rest of the rod, and it was perfect. Smooth and cylindrical, still sealed at each end, they were certain it would shake down the clouds when it detonated. No fools, these future felons. They carried the remainder of the carpet pole back to the store and deposited it in the alley. When the bomb went off, they didn't want any incriminating evidence to be found at Johnny's residence. It might be obvious that a pole had been tampered with, but that shouldn't lead the cops to their doors. Upon their return to Johnny Stewart's garage, a perfectly round hole, three-eighths of an inch in diameter, was painstakingly bored through one of the section ends. Unfortunately, and unbeknownst to the pair, a third Fremonter had joined them. Mickey Jr.'s younger brother, Kevin, had seen them passing by, and, as younger brothers are wont to do, he tailed them as effectively as any G-man on TV. "'What you making?' The two terrorists in training spun to see the eight-year-old standing in the open doorway of the garage. What followed was a battle of words and a surfeit of threats not to mention pushes, shoves, and a few kicks as the self-styled demolition experts tried to remove the stubborn subaltern from their presence. All came to an abrupt halt when Kevin uttered the fateful words, I'm telling Mom. With that threat, Kevin became a junior partner in the venture. Kevin was told in the broadest terms possible about the plan and shown the preparations underway, but rather than sharing the rabid enthusiasm of his superior officers, the newly enrolled accomplice folded his arms and stubbornly proclaimed, It's gonna fizzle. The precious gunpowder was painstakingly funneled through the hole in the bamboo. Then the seventeen leftover inch-long fuses were joined end to end with masking tape and inserted a few inches through the hole. Most of the rest of the roll of tape was used to seal off the hole and wrap around and over the entire end of the homemade blasting device. The three boys stepped back to admire their handiwork. It's gonna fizzle, Kevin asserted. Anxious to test the efficacy of their efforts, the boys laid the bamboo section on the ground in the center of Johnny's backyard. Why they had not opted for a testing facility far from civilization was a question for which in years to come they never had an answer. While the older two boys opted to run for cover once the grafted fuses were ignited, Kevin only took two steps back, still stubbornly insisting that it's gonna fizzle. Johnny and Mickey Jr. had just made it to the relative safety of the corner of the Stewart's house when the bamboo detonated with a blast that not only felt like they had each received a punch in the chest, but bodily lifted Kevin and threw him three feet, where he landed on his back, arms and legs extended above him in the pose of a dead cockroach. The two bomb builders rushed out, certain they would find the youngest member of their party recently deceased. Upon arrival at the blast site, 
Kevin was in a state of stupor, just regaining control over his extremities. The gray wool sweater he wore was studded with bamboo splinters, giving him the appearance of an angry porcupine. The older two boys helped him to his feet and began picking bamboo from his sweater while marveling at the large new bald spot in the middle of the yard. Kevin was stunned, to be sure, but miraculously unhurt by his concussive experience. The boys fled the scene before Johnny's mother could get out the door to question them, and upon arriving on Fremont Avenue, they were greeted with the very gratifying news that the residents there thought a passing jet plane must have caused a sonic boom that rattled windows in many houses. Rather than bask in newfound fame, the boys did the one sensible thing of the day by remaining mute as to their knowledge of the source of the mysterious blast. The truth of the great blast remained a dark secret for more than 20 years until the story was finally told at a reunion of Fremont Avenue kids.